everyone. Welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred, sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, times in which it seems people have always lived. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white people about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? The theme song you heard is a recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the freedom movement, We Are Building Up a New World. This recording is from a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December of 2014. It was led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this podcast, or this song rather, for the podcast. I'm Reverend Jean Jeffress. I'm an associate pastor in a local United Church of Christ in Northern California in what's called the South Bay or Silicon Valley. I live a little bit north of the church in a place called Oakland in what's called the East Bay. And both the South Bay and the East Bay exist on the unceded and ancestral lands of the Ohlone people. This podcast is a project of Surge showing up for racial justice, Surge Faith, the faith wing of Surge. And it is particularly designed for white people, white Christians. The idea is that white people will talk to other white people about race and white supremacy. We believe that white people, like many of you listening, listening now and like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy and speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it. We definitely have extra work to do, and we need to look for white supremacy even in our own Christian traditions. We'd love to hear from you, and especially from black and brown listeners and from listeners of all different faith traditions. We'd love to hear how you think we're doing. The word is resistance. In this episode, I'll start, as I have a couple times in the past, with an excerpt from a book entitled Our Racist Presidents, From Washington to Nixon, written by Mel Steinfeld. It was written in 1972. There's a few little archaic terms in there. And there is a poor quality PDF that you can uh, click to if you read the transcript. So this is from the chapter on Abraham Lincoln. The chapter is called Abraham Lincoln, Racist Emancipator. And it's uh, from a document um, where a black abolitionist is critiquing Lincoln's anti-slavery position. It's called, A Black Abolitionist Reviews Lincoln's Support of Slavery. During the, the, during the 1860 campaign for presidency, a former slave described the anti-slavery position of Lincoln as hypocritical. The following excerpt from a speech by H. Ford Douglas was not atypical of many reservations expressed by contemporary blacks. Every department of national life, the president's chair, the Senate of the United States, the Supreme Court, and the American pulpit is occupied and controlled by the dark spirit of American slavery. We have four parties in this country that have marshaled themselves on the highway of American politics asking for the votes of the American people to place them in possession of the government. We have what is called the Union Party, led by Mr. Bell of Tennessee. We have what is called the Democratic Party, led by Stephen A. Douglas of Illinois. 
We have the party called the Seceders, or the Slave Code Democrats, led by John C. Breckinridge of Kentucky. And then we have the Republican Party, led by Abraham Lincoln of Illinois. All of these parties ask for your support because they profess to represent some principle. So far as the principles of freedom and the hopes of the black men are concerned, all these parties are barren and unfruitful. Neither of them seeks to lift the Negro out of his fetters and rescue this day from odium and disgrace. Take Abraham Lincoln. I want to know if any man can tell me the difference between the anti-slavery of Abraham Lincoln and the anti-slavery of the old Whig party or the anti-slavery of Henry Clay. Why, there is no difference between them. Abraham Lincoln is simply a Henry Clay Whig, and he believes just as Henry Clay believed in regard to this question. And Henry Clay was just as odious to the anti-slavery cause and the anti-slavery men as ever was any as ever was John C. Calhoun. In fact, he did as much to perpetrate Negro slavery in this country as any other man who ever lived. Henry Clay once said, that is property which the law declares to be property, and that 200 years of legislation have sanctioned and sanctified property in slaves. Wherever Henry Clay is today in the universe of God, that atheistic lie is with him, with all its tormenting memories. I know Abraham Lincoln, and I know something about his anti-slavery. I know the Republicans do not like this kind of talk because, while they are willing to steal our thunder, they are unwilling to submit to the conditions imposed upon that party that assumes to be anti-slavery. They say that they cannot go as fast as you anti-slavery men go in this matter, that they cannot afford to be uncompromisingly honest, nor so radical as you Garrisonians, that they want to take time, that they want to do the work gradually. They say, we must not be in too great a hurry to overthrow slavery. At least we must take half a loaf if we cannot get the whole. Now, my friends, I believe that the very best way to overthrow slavery in this country is to occupy the highest possible anti-slavery ground. Washington Irving tells us a story of a Dutchman who wanted to jump over a ditch, and he went back three miles in order to get a good start. And when he got up to the ditch, he had to sit down on the wrong side to get his breath. So it is with these political parties. They are compelled, they say, when they get up to the ditch of slavery to stop and breathe. To stop and take a breath, rather. And there ends the reading from our racist presidents this time. The Republicans of today are always saying, or I have heard it said from some of them, that they are the party of Lincoln. And I don't know for sure, but I think they say that because Lincoln is known for being the emancipator of the enslaved. That's kind of the, the general thing that people think about Lincoln. And like that somehow translates to today's reality. One thing that does translate is that, like Lincoln's Republicans, today's Republicans, and today's Democrats for that matter, seem to be still rest resting, uh, you know, by the ditch. Republicans seem to be camping there with their Jim Crow aspirations rising and their America First Congressional Caucus being formed as we speak. 
America First Congressional Caucus. That should be scary to everybody. The Dems, I don't even know what the Dems are up to right now, have not been consuming as much news. Last I checked, they were fiddling with the filibuster. But all I know is that the sentiment to preserve the absolute power of white supremacy that existed during Lincoln's time is still alive and well today. So as a nation, we're sitting on the wrong side of the ditch. Always have been. Hopefully not, won't always will be, but I'm not holding my breath. So confession time, everyone. When I signed up to record this podcast this week, I thought the passage was going to be Luke 24, 13 through 25, the road to Emmaus. It's always the passage passage after Easter, I thought. But this year, you know, year B is different. Today, we we drop into Luke's post-resurrection story right after the road to Emmaus when Cleopas and his companion, the two who encountered Jesus on the road to Emmaus, come back to Jerusalem to tell the 11 disciples about their experience of the resurrected Christ. Today's passage is from Luke 24, 36b to 48, and it says, While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified, and they thought they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, Why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my feet and my hands. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And there ends the scripture reading. So going back just a little in Luke, just to paraphrase a few things, on the third day, the women went to the the tomb where Jesus had been taken, and they got there, and the stone was rolled away, and Jesus was not there. He is risen, they were told, by two men in gleaming white clothes. So the women, they go back, and they tell the men, but surprise, surprise, the men do not believe the women, and they have to go check it out for themselves. Then Cleopas and his friend are on their way from Jerusalem, a little traumatized, I would imagine, When Jesus walks alongside them, 
and they don't recognize him right away, but they finally recognize him at table, doing something familiar, blessing and breaking the bread. And then he just disappears. There's a few instances of disappearing in the Bible. Cleopas and his friend immediately go back to Jerusalem where they find the other disciples. And while they're sharing their experience, Jesus pops in and says, peace be with you. And that's where we drop in today. And guess what? They don't believe it's him. They have to touch his wounds and see him eat. Resurrection is hard to believe. It's hard to take in. But Jesus takes time to explain, to remind them what he had said, that he had come to fulfill the law of Moses, of the prophets and the Psalms, that he was to suffer and rise on the third day, rise from the dead on the third day. And there was, and there he was, wounds and all, eating fish, bringing a blessing. I love that scene. It's so, it's so interesting how he's like, do you have something to eat? I just love that. Anyway, so Reverend Dr. Cheryl Lindsay, who writes the commentary uh, on the UCC Sermons webpage, calls this scene with Jesus and the disciples an ordination ceremony with a greeting, a blessing, and a commissioning. Jesus says, you are my witnesses, essentially. The word translated to witness from the Greek is martyr. So witness and martyr are the same thing. So a witness is not just a bystander. A witness is a stakeholder. A witness is involved. A witness is in the struggle and in the messiness. A witness doesn't get to walk away from something, not without shutting down a part of their humanity. Dr. Lindsay says, Jesus did not and does not call disciples to dispassionate or distant observation of human suffering. We are witnesses. another confession. I'm feeling really brokenhearted of late over the state of white people. I've been brokenhearted before, but this is a new level of brokenheartedness if there is such a thing as levels of brokenheartedness. In my mind's eye, my heart looks like a clock in a Salvador, Salvador Dali painting, just limp and draped over something. I've moved beyond being furious at the white people who, for example, went to the city council meeting in in a town that's not too far from the town where I grew up to complain that the high school kids who had organized a Black Lives Matter march were like Nazis. Or at all the white church people I've run across in my life who get mad when they think the pastor quotes Martin Luther King Jr. more than they quote Jesus. I bet they wouldn't be mad if the pastor quoted Mary Oliver more than Jesus. Nothing against Mary Oliver, of course. Or the white church people who don't like, you know, don't want to talk about quote-unquote social issues. Or all the white people who stormed the Capitol. You know, it doesn't really help that I've been reading the comments lately. You know, the comments, 
the ones you're not supposed to read. I've read some of them. The tension is rising and racialized violence is escalating. And it seems that that the majority of white people can't or won't bear witness, be witnesses to those crucified on the cross of white supremacy. And because we cannot bear witness to the crucifixion, we do not have access to the resurrection or repentance or forgiveness of sins. Repent means to change direction, to turn around. How can we repent if we can't or won't realize we're going the wrong way? And how can we be forgiven if we never even ask? What has to die in white people for us to understand, experience, or even glimpse resurrection? Because white supremacy can't die. It's like the undead existing in a perpetual state of deathliness. You'd have to cut off its head or stab it with a wooden stake or burn it. It will have to die in each of us first, and then maybe we'll have a chance at new life. But there can't be witness where there's whiteness. But God is good. I know that God is good because God has given me the gift of a broken heart. I've been working with various white progressive church people for about five or six years, talking about white supremacy, doing Bible study through racial justice lens and stuff like that. It's not always fun. People can be very anxious and I mean, combative might be too strong of a word, but something like combative. I've spent a lot of time just being mad at these folks. But today, I feel compassion. I just feel compassion. That could be different tomorrow, but I know that I really can't do anything or with anything for people that I don't love. White supremacy is so not interested in us loving each other. It destroys anything that threatens it, and love is certainly the biggest threat to white supremacy because love bears witness when nothing else will. Now, part of the reason I'm I'm so torn up from inside out this week is because I've been binge listening to a podcast called Ear Hustle. Now, I don't know if I'm supposed to plug another podcast on the podcast, but I just can't, can't help it. This is a podcast that's produced inside of San Quentin State Prison in California, not too far from where I live, actually. The podcast tells the stories of the men incarcerated there, not so much about their crimes, but more about who they are now, what their lives are like in prison, what gives them hope, their day-to-day lives stuff about their childhoods and some of the things they've been through. The stories range from amazingly uplifting to absolutely devastating. And a character in every story, whether or not it's mentioned directly, is white supremacy. It looms like Rome looms in the New Testament. I won't get into specifics because I want you to go and listen to the podcast. The carceral state dismembers 
communities. The whole idea is that these people are supposed to be gone, forgotten, swept away for the maintenance of the status quo. But Ear Hustle brings these people's stories back to life, like Jesus showing up saying, peace be with you. I'm still here. My story lives on. Resurrection is real. So white listeners out there, I don't know what it will take for us to shed whiteness for witness. But I'm starting with a broken heart. So inspired by the Ear Hustle podcast, I want to encourage folks to get a prison pen pal. The guys on Ear Hustle podcast say, say mail letters are a lifeline. There are several pen pal organizations online. I'll put a link in the transcript, but of course, do your own research. And the next call to action is to download the Surge Community Safety for All Congregational action toolkit. Say that fast 12 times. You can download it in the transcript. And there'll be a bit more information about it in the transcript as well. Thank you all so much for joining me today, wherever you are in the world. And let us know how how you're doing, how your action goes. We'd love to hear from you all by commenting on our SoundCloud, Twitter, or Facebook pages. So tune in next week for a resistance word from Seth Whispleway. And you can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. And our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Transcripts are available as well on our website, which include references and resources and links to information you might need. And finally, a huge thanks, as always, to our sound editor this week, Maxwell Pearl. Thank you, Max. You're infinitely patient. Blessings to you all in all that you do. Love and liberation. Take care. Really, really take care. And until next time, I'm Jean Jeffers. Jean Jeffers.